when we started out, it felt like I was wearing a hundred hats in the company and just doing a little bit of everything, including climbing up on the roof to uh, turn wrenches, as they say. And I learned from the other entrepreneur that I that I worked with before the startup of Revision that you really have to empower young people to go out and make their mark in the world. And so as we had people like Fred Greenhalgh, my digital marketing manager, as they came to Revision looking for an opportunity, I had a good background of, of uh, watching myself be empowered to succeed and watching other young people be empowered to succeed that I wanted to just give him as much leeway as possible to let him go out and make a mark in the world. And sometimes when you do that with the right people, they set the world on fire in, in, in a positive way. Sure. And, and Fred is one example. And we have hundreds of other examples at Revision at this point because our hiring philosophy is, is bring in exceptional people and empower them to be the most successful people in your industry. And they have to make that happen. You can't do all of it for them. And so you have to give them a lot of leash and for the right people that can produce phenomenal results. Hey everyone, I'm Palmer Higgins and welcome to the Big Time Small Business Podcast. I interview owners, operators, and founders of the small businesses you see every day but don't hear enough about. We talk about the obstacles they have faced, the successes they have earned, and where their business is going to inspire and inform you in your own career. On this episode, I speak with Phil Coop, co-founder of Revision Energy, a full-service renewable energy contracting company in Maine that was ranked number one in New England and number 14 nationally for rooftop solar in 2016. Originally started in 2003 by two guys in a garage, Phil and his partners have grown Revision to a 250-employee company, spanning five locations in three states. In 2017, Revision sold itself to its employees via an employee stock ownership plan. So we dive deep into this program, the founders' reasons for pursuing it, and why they think it will set the company up for the next 100 years. Phil Coop, co-founder of Revision Energy. Thanks a lot for being on the Big Time Small Business Podcast. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Awesome. You brought a lot of goodies here, so I can't wait to dive into them. We'll, we'll get into why. Um, first things first, I'd love to kick off just to give everyone a sense. Uh, in, a, in a brief intro, can you describe who Revision Energy is? Revision Energy is a main-based company that provides all the cost-effective tools to help people and businesses abandon fossil fuels. So we specialize in solar energy and then all the complementary technologies like battery storage, heat pumps, uh, LED lighting, and electric vehicle charging stations, like the one that I'm enjoying outside your offices, Palmer. You are. You are. Yeah. You plugged in? Yes, yeah, for sure. Excellent. Excellent. Enjoy. Um, yeah. So you guys started in 2003, right? That's correct. And it was a little bit of a, of a merger of a number of different co-founders. So I want to I want to take I want you to take us back there. Sort of what was the genesis of Revision Energy? What was the opportunity that you saw or what was sort of the mandate you talk about abandoning fossil fuels? I know you guys are very mission driven and values driven. So can you talk about the genesis of that back in 03? Yeah, you could say that 
Revision Energy was kind of the the byproduct of what started out as the Green Store in Belfast. One of the original founders was a guy named Bill Barons, who continues to be one of my business partners today and, and an original co-founder of Revision. And he had, he started out the uh, the Green Store in Belfast to try to get into the green. Uh, energy space or the sustainability space, and when they were running the green store, they recognized a you know a growing demand for people to have solar on their homes, and so they split off a, a company called Energy Works back in uh, like 2000. Mm-hmm. And then uh, some more partners kind of uh, straggled in myself and Fortunat Mueller, and in 2003, um, Revision Energy kind of came into being. Sure. Um, so you can take us back to the early days back then, I think solar was definitely not as mainstream as, as it is now. I think you could probably make the case that maybe you guys would make the case that it's still not as mainstream as you'd like it. So can you talk about, um, sort of the industry and the market back then as compared to today? Yeah, back in the early 2000s, solar was still very much kind of a backwoods, more of a hippie type operation. And we had a very conscious and intentional um, perspective that it was time to bring it mainstream. You know, the, uh, the impact of billions of people around the globe burning fossil fuels in a closed atmosphere uh, was becoming more and more um, I- identified as an unsustainable um, long-term program. And we figured, hey, what better time to make a run at a mainstream solar business that could really help people make a long-term transition to clean energy? Sure. So that's definitely the the environmental push of creating revision. Was there a financial pull as well? Yeah, at the time I had a two-year-old daughter and my wife was pregnant with twin boys. And I was really scratching my head about how uh, one day I'd be able to some, uh, you know, educate them and maybe help make the world a, a better place for them to proceed into. Sure. I don't know what it is about entrepreneurs, but I feel like they almost always decide to take the most risk in their career at the same time when they're having the most change at home. You're, it's it's uncanny how many times people on this podcast said, yeah, when I was really starting my business, you know, I, I was having kids or I was buying my first home or my wife was changing jobs too. It's like incredible the amount of turmoil that that time generally coincides with. Young children are a very powerful motivator. <laughs> Fair. And, and, and I'll have to say that I never could have done this had I not seen another entrepreneur do it myself. When, when I was younger, uh, learning my way in the business world, I hooked up with a guy who also had three young kids and was launching a uh, what turned out to be a very successful business. And I watched him pull that off. And that's what made me realize it would be possible to do it myself. Without sure. that real world example, I'm not sure I would have had the motivation or the guts to do it. Interesting. Yeah, it definitely helps to see, see, see someone, to see someone go before you or come before you. Um, now you open up the door. What else did you learn in that experience as, as a younger person, seeing someone start a business that how and how did that shape you when in 2003 you decided to make a plunge? Yeah, so I came out of college with a journalism degree, okay. and I was really liking my life as a uh, weekly um, newspaper reporter, but I was starving to death. And I wrote a story about this guy who came out of uh, 
Harvard with an MBA, and he also had a Duke engineering degree. And his dream was to have a successful startup. So he started this company called Drink More Water down in Washington, Washington DC. And I kind of wrote a newspaper story about that startup and asked him if he needed help and jumped in on the ground level as a, you know, uh, first rung of the ladder, so to speak. And we grew the business from zero revenues to about 6 million in five years time. It made the Inc. 500 list of fastest growing companies in America. And I learned a tremendous amount about, you know, financial controls in a business, uh, sales, marketing, quality control, engineering, and that kind of front row seat to a business startup gave me tremendous uh, kind of uh, business skills to think about doing something on my own someday. Sure. So I think that is that that probably is the best uh, business degree you could have gotten before starting your own. So what were some of the things that you that you had top of mind or that you were acutely aware of in the dawn of Revision Energy of saying, you know, hey, I've, I've seen this before. We need to make sure we're doing X, Y, Z. Socially responsible business practices actually became one of my kind of core disciplines at that initial startup at Drink More Water. And what I learned is that businesses doing the right thing in the world uh, tend to outperform more traditional kind of pure profit focused businesses. At least that's what I've seen in my experience. And so I launched Co corporate social responsibility from day one within Revision Energy because I had seen it be really effective in the past. And and I'd say that would be this, the single most important driver for some of the success at Revision from the sales and marketing standpoint. Awesome. So then let's talk about that. What does, what does that mean for you and for Revision Energy when you talk about corporate responsibility, social responsibility? It means uh, really caring about the community that you live and work in. It means... Uh, trying to do the right thing for the environment. It means treating your workers the best you possibly can so that they uh, they have a chance to succeed in the world and and so that they ultimately want to stick around the business and keep the institutional knowledge intact for the long haul. Sure. Uh, you know, and if we flash forward, you guys have become a B Corp. I think that was in 2015? Correct. 2015. So in a lot of ways, the, uh, the genesis of that was there in founding and you sort of formalized it, memorialized it by being certified B Corp come 2015. Uh, and now on the employee side, again, to fast forward, you guys became 100% employee owned via an ESOP in what year? That was October 2017. I want to go back before we talk about ESOPs um, and sort of the current status revision. I want to go back to the beginning, not necessarily 03, but the beginning timeframe and, and sort of sketch out for us what the industry was looking like. Uh, I think a lot of people uh, who are listening to this, who maybe aren't as familiar with solar, sort of say, you know, solar, isn't that sort of, isn't that Elon Musk's territory? And isn't it basically propped up by by government incentives? Um, so can you talk about the market and how it's matured and developed over the past 15 years? The most important thing to get out there to the listeners is that the cost of solar panels has dropped by 99% over the last 20 years. And I'm talking about solar electric panels. And that's just crea created this tectonic shift in the industry. When Revision started out, we were almost exclusively a solar hot water company. And that was because you could displace oil to make it cost effective to invest in solar hot water, but also because the cost of solar electricity was just exorbitant and cost prohibitive. And so people didn't want to buy it. Sure. And that 
And when you say, just to take a brief, brief interlude, when you say cost effective on the solar hot water side, um, what are you looking for in terms of either a payback period or an ROI to say, to go to someone and say, this is cost effective? Yeah, back in the early days of the business, a solar hot water system might have a payback of, say, five to six years on 25-year equipment. Sure. Okay. So then price of, of solar panels drops 99%. The world opens up to you to, to leverage solar in a lot of different ways. So can you talk about how that's affected Revision's business? So we have transitioned now to like say 90% solar electric systems and then the rest is comprised of the applying the complementary technologies of heat pumps, battery storage, electric vehicle charging stations, and LED lighting. Um, and and so today we have all of these cost-effective solutions where a consumer can, say, take out a bank loan to finance all of those products for their home or their business, and the savings from fossil fuels that, that, that no longer need to be purchased will effectively pay for the monthly note on the loan. So you've mm -hmm. got a cash flow neutral investment that is you know, not, not exactly saving you money from day one, but not costing you anything. But after you pay back the investment or pay back the, the loan, you've got free energy for the next 20 or 30 years. Sure. So that has, you know, radically changed the trajectory of the company. We've grown from two guys in a garage in 2003 uh, to today we're 250 people in five locations in three states. Right. So that's what I want to talk about, uh, that kind of growth. And growth has been a topic on this podcast a couple of times talking about how to manage growth. And on the on the downside, if you're not growing or you're shrinking, that's a problem. I think that's pretty obvious. Uh, but on the flip side, if you grow too fast, that can also be a problem. Uh, and regardless of what industry you're in, regardless the, you know, uh, of, the, of the social or environmental impact you're looking to have, Revision Energy is a business that employs people, that provides a product and a service to its customers. So how have you managed uh, the growth of Revision Energy over the past 15 years, given a, a very changing environment in which to operate, both positive from the cost of solar panels and potentially negative from this the regulatory turbulence, let's call it. Mm. We've worked really hard to try and be what we call responsible manager, managers of the business. We're not looking for... Um, uh, huge growth for growth's sake. We're looking to advance the mission of the company. And that mission is to transition Northern New England from a fossil fuel-based economy to a sustainable renewable energy-based economy. And we have added people and infrastructure strictly in response to, to the demand that we're experiencing and not uh, with some fantasy about some anticipated demand that might come over the horizon. Uh, and so we think that that type of more organic growth has helped us stay resilient in the face of lots of kind of policy ups and downs. They call this industry the solar coaster because every year you could get a different state or federal incentive or lack thereof yeah. that can significantly impact the, you know, the economics of a solar investment. So it's been a pretty, um, pretty exciting and wild ride, uh, sometimes a little bit scary. Uh, living under the LePage administration for the past eight years in Maine has made us extremely disciplined about how we operate the business because Maine has had the worst solar policy in New England for eight years. And so you learn how to be um, very careful with the resources 
that you have and not and uh, be careful not to overspend, not to overinvest, and try to have a Goldilocks approach to growth. Sure. So can you, can you talk about that specifically? Let's use Maine as a case study. Um, so for those that don't know how bad it is in regard to the solar policy with respect to the rest of New England and, and what that means tactically from a diligence standpoint for you at Revision Energy, can you talk a little bit more about that? For example, when we started out the company, there were really high incentives for solar hot water in the state, and they were frankly they weren't really sustainable. They it was early in the in the game for solar, and the state regulators weren't exactly sure of the best tools to help the industry succeed. And so, uh, a few companies kind of sprouted up quickly in response to these artificial incentives. And when those went away, when LePage came in, a bunch of businesses kind of immediately disappeared because they no longer had this, this artificial driver of, of, um, of demand from the consumer side. Uh, we never kind of over-relied on those incentives as the foundation of our business. You know, we were looking to attract customers who had the means to invest in solar and who could genuinely take advantage of the technology. And we delivered cost-effective systems to them that, uh, you know, were enhanced by the incentives but weren't purely driven by the incentives. We also diversified geographically to protect ourselves from something like, you know, LePage's attack on solar. We figured moving into New Hampshire and Massachusetts would give us a place to run if the if the conditions became untenable in Maine for a solar business. I think, uh, you know, Palmer, I, I would also just want to try to weave into this <laughs> if it doesn't hit the cutting floor. You know, the fact that we've had 200 years of the industrial revolution and followed by the technological revolution that we're in today, all of it powered by these uh, incredibly dense and, and wonderful fossil fuels. And fossil fuels have powered the most profound advancement of the human species in the, in the history of mankind. But we've reached this point now where the arithmetic of 7 billion people burning those fossil fuels is not tenable. But part of the big problem is over those 200 years, trillions of dollars of fossil fuel wealth has been accumulated across the globe and also particularly in America. And unfortunately, hundreds of millions of those dollars of wealth are being deployed to stop renewable energy in its tracks. And that's one of the big um, obstacles that we face is kind of like a constant drumbeat of uh, fake news about like solar doesn't work or solar's not cost effective or solar over relies on subsidies. And people need to remember fossil fuels have been subsidized from day one and continue to be sub subsidized at a higher level than renewables are today. Sure. So that becomes a, a marketing sales part branding challenge. Uh, and as someone before we hit the record button, you said that's what you spend at least some, if not most of your time doing. So how do you combat that how do you set the record straight or how do you tell your story and, and, and have it be heard, have it be impactful, have it land for customers or potential customers? We think we have a pretty effective marketing machine and public relations machine that we've built in-house. Uh, we have a newsletter with 30,000 readers that goes out in northern New England. Uh, we're often looked to by the um, by the traditional press as kind of subject matter experts. So we get called on quite often to... Um, 
give comments about the renewable energy industry. And so we have a, a continual kind of um, output of real factual information that people trust about the solar industry and the cost effectiveness of the technology. And over time, I think you earn people's trust regardless of the kind of their political persuasion. Um, and then, uh, and then you can make headway against kind of fake attacks. Sure. So how do you, how do you develop that platform is what you're, what I'm hearing when you say that is we, we've developed, um, a platform where we can effectively reach a lot of people to sort of spread our story. And, and we've, we've branded ourselves correctly as a subject matter expert with lens, which lends you credibility, right? But you mm -hmm. can't just snap your fingers and say, guess what? You know, revision is a subject matter expert in solar. Everyone should pay attention to us and, you know, distribution should be far and wide. So how have you built that over time? We've earned that credibility through the course of eight, more than 8,000 solar installations to date that, you know, they all work. And as people see that the uh, technology work that you're doing is actually cost effective as you said it would be, um, they be, you know, people become believers in what you're doing and what you're saying. And then they become your repeaters out in the marketplace and they tell all of their friends and that six degrees of separation effect starts to take hold and you get a reputation as an honest broker, um, not just in the solar industry, but as a, you know, honest broker in the community, in the state, you b intentionally build relationships with thought leaders and influencers throughout your territory. And you feed them the honest truth in every case, whether it's to your advantage or not, you always um, say the truthful thing. And that, you know, that still has currency in sure. the modern world when we're, I feel like we're under constant attack with, by fake news and disinformation. Sure. Um, so, so one debate, uh, not really debate, but one thing that uh, we're focusing on a lot internally as our, our portfolio companies is the relationship between content and distribution. Um, and on previous podcasts, uh, have heard have heard the same that, you know, content is great. You need some content in order to get the word and the message out there, but distribution matters way more. Wondering what your take is on that, if you agree. Uh, and if so, how have you guys focused on that distribution piece? Because again, 30,000 people on your distribution list, that's a lot of people. Yeah, we're very proud of that accomplishment. And we, uh, I just have to give a nod to my digital marketing manager, this guy named Fred Greenhalge, who joined us, you know, early in the days of, of Revision Energy Startup. And he has just been tremendous in helping us open those distribution channels by building relationships with reporters and information brokers and other uh, news outlets, web outlets, podcasts, um, Twitter, Facebook, you know, we have a great social media presence that is constantly nurtured by people who know what they're doing in that space. And honestly, Palmer, I'm not the expert. <laughs> I'm too old for that stuff. I'm, sure. I'm a 51 year old uh, newspaper reader. And so I have a great team of really talented young people who are kind of ninjas in the social media space. I like the word, <laughs> yeah, ninjas. And, and, and so they handle that end of the deal. And then myself and the other kind of older dogs in, in the uh, co-founder space, you know, we handle the traditional media ourselves. Sure. So that brings up another point of delegation, uh, something that is a, is a constant topic on this podcast of 
noticing that, hey, maybe you're not the best person to run a social media campaign or to run, you know, the, the PR division of revision. Uh, so how has your role in revision energy evolved over time? When we started out, it felt like I was wearing a hundred hats in the company and just doing a little bit of everything, including climbing up on the roof to uh, turn wrenches, as they say. And I learned from the other entrepreneur that I that I worked with before the startup of Revision that you really have to empower young people to go out and make their mark in the world. And so as we had people like Fred Greenhalgh, my digital marketing manager, as they came to Revision looking for an opportunity, I had a good background of, of uh, watching myself be empowered to succeed and watching other young people be empowered to succeed that I wanted to just give him as much leeway as possible to let him go out and make a mark in the world. And sometimes when you do that with the right people, they set the world on fire in, in, in a positive way. Sure. And, and Fred is one example. And we have hundreds of other examples at Revision at this point, because our hiring philosophy is, is bring in exceptional people and empower them to be the most successful people in your industry. And they have to make that happen. You can't do all of it for them. And so you have to give them a lot of leash and for the right people that can produce phenomenal results. Totally agree. And I can hear people who are listening who are saying, I totally agree, but how do you make, how do you make that a reality? So how do you find the right person, know that they're the right person to give them the leeway? Because I guarantee the entrepreneurs who are listening to this are saying, I'd love to do that. And I have done that. And it's burned me a few times. First thing is hire for attitude, train for skills. When we humans meet another human, we have an initial gut reaction in nanoseconds of within meeting those people. And, and that gut reaction is usually confirmed over the ensuing minutes of that meeting. And so it shouldn't take us a a real long time to get a good or negative vibe about a specific individual who we're talking to, whether making a new acquaintance or doing an interview with somebody. And so I think it's it's a skill that's honed over time and, and with practice and and you ideally get good at it and we all make mistakes. You know, there have been a couple disaster hires along the way that just didn't go anywhere for us. Fair. So another adage out there when it comes to uh, hiring is hire slow, fire fast. Do you agree or not agree? If you can do it successfully, I would agree. And it's hard to do. Uh, I think the fire quickly is really difficult, especially for, you know, if you're a B Corp and you're trying to be socially responsible and take awesome care of all your employees, you go into that, that hiring bargain thinking that you're, uh, you're connecting with someone for a really long time and that they are going to do right by you and you're going to do right by them. And we have this tendency to want to give people maybe too many chances. And that's been a failure on our part a few times historically. Um, Thankfully, not so often that it's really caused any uh, long-term damage, but we've waited too long in the past and we suffered from it. And we have learned and we've become a little bit uh, quicker to let somebody go if it doesn't look like a good mutually beneficial fit. Sure. So I'm one of those that uh, easy to say, hard to do. And uh, sort of rolls into another adage about, 
the process of hiring is the first time you think about firing someone is when you probably should be firing them, uh, which points to sort of that kick the can down the road. You're you're smirking and pressing your lips together and nodding. So I'm assuming that yeah. you're thinking about some personal examples that you know maybe that's true. Oh, for sure. Yeah. yeah. Okay. But uh, luckily I can only, I can count them on one hand. Sure. Which we're actually going to get to with, with a slight detour because I, I want to, I want to spend some time talking about the ESOP employee stock ownership plan. Uh, it's something very unique. I think it's definitely catching on in Maine. Um, I had a conversation just yesterday about someone who focuses on ESOP consulting. Um, so I, I want to get to that. But first, I want to talk about competition. Um, so you talk about you're in an industry that to some extent sort of rides the the solar coaster of regulation, both state and federal, um, with this gigantic tailwind uh, from people, for the right people, where the environmental, social impact of what you guys do is very powerful. And to your point from earlier in the podcast, that the fact that you're doing good, doing right, by the environment, by people being a certified B Corp with a triple bottom line, you know, that in itself is a very powerful marketing strategy. Um, but obviously other people can pick up on that too. And there's tons of solar companies. So how do you think about competition and how has maybe that perception changed as you guys have supplanted yourself as a large premium, I mean, you're the number one residential rooftop solar uh, contractor in New England. So how was, how was that how was your perception or your feelings of competition involved over time? We've tried to take a, a positive uh, look at, at the idea of competition in that the, this clean energy transition is probably like a 50 to 100 year endeavor. And it's going to take an awful lot of people to pull it off over the long term. We got 200 years of fossil fuel infrastructure to kind of uh, res, uh, replace, if you will, and so we like to think that there's room for a lot of players in the renewable energy space. By the same token, you have to defend your your market share wherever you're trying to operate a successful business over the long term. And so we compete on a number of levels. Um, being cost effective is really important in this space. And so to compete with the nationals like Solar City, we've actually formed a nationwide co-op called the Amicus Solar Co-op. It's about 50 companies across the US of a similar size and, and philosophical approach as Revision Energy. And what we do is we pool our purchasing efforts together to have the same horsepower as a national juggernaut like Solar City, so that we can go manufacturer direct and get high quality components at really low prices and be able to pass those savings on to consumers. And so that's how you compete with some of the local or regional players. Mm -hmm. uh, we let's, let's talk about that for a yeah. little bit. So 50 companies getting everyone to buy in, understand and agree sort of crowding those 50 companies. I have to imagine that can be difficult. So how, who, who did you take the lead on that? Yeah, well, we were one of the founding members, but we did not actually take the lead. But we did write that first $10,000 check to launch the, the Amicus Co-op. And we were awfully grateful and relieved when that $10,000 check came back to us in rebates from the you know, group purchases within the first year. But actually, you know, the group is very powerful and cohesive. And so we get together two to three times a year throughout the country in different locations and we share best practices. And that's just been transformative for lots of the businesses. You know, what is the most efficient way to install a rooftop solar array? Well, if you got 50 different 
approaches and we take the best from each of those 50 and distill it down to one single most cost-effective and efficient way to do it, everybody benefits. And so it's worth taking that day-long or two-day retreat to learn those tactics tactics and share them. And we try not to be, you know, having too many companies within one another's territory, but there's a little bit of overlap. Uh, we share best sales and marketing strategies. Uh, we share, you know, B Corp success stories. And so in the aggregate, all of that, the benefits of that far outweighs whatever hassles it takes to get all the, you know, people participating, pulling in the same direction. Sure. Okay. So now I do want to get in to the ESOP. Um, so Revision Energy sold itself to its employees. That's sort of the simplest way to talk about it. But I, I want the listeners to hear it straight from your mouth. Um, what was the impetus to decide to do that? And then give us just a quick primer on what an ESOP is. Yeah, it's a bit of a long story, Palmer. So we'll see how much of it sticks. But right. this process started in 2015 when a lot of companies in the solar industry were extremely nervous about the sunset of the 30% federal tax credit that continues to drive a lot of consumer interest and and um, cost savings from solar investments today. And so we started looking around to think about how Revision Energy would survive the loss of the tax credit. And we looked at a couple other B Corp solar companies in New England, thinking about a merger that might help give us greater geographic strength into um, states with better um, policy than what was happening in Maine. Mm -hmm. We explored that merger for over a year and a miracle happened along the way in that the 30% federal tax credit was extended for quite some time. And so the urgency became almost non-existent, but we were still curious about, well, what exit strategies, what long-term sustainability strategies might be in the best interest of revision? Because we couldn't look over the horizon for the next 10 or 20 years, and we want this to be a hundred year company. And in the law, in the end, we decided that we wanted to bet on ourselves and not hitch our wagon to two other B Corp solar companies in the Northeast. And so we we cut loose from the idea of a merger and we pivoted to the idea of an ESOP as a way to give the company 50 or 100 years of long-term sustainability by sharing the success of the business with the people who are actually making it happen. And also as a way to enable the founders of the company to take some of the chips off the table that had been accrued since the startup. And we figured we could do both of those things in the form of an ESOP. And that drove that decision. Sure. Yeah. So if you could give us a little bit of uh, color as to what that actually means. So what is an ESOP um, and, and why does that help give you the, why does that solve the question of how can we help this company be the next hundred year company? So the employee stock ownership plan is actually a, uh, an incarnation of the internal revenue service. And it was an, an effort by the U S government to incentivize companies to treat employees better. And instead of kind of accruing all of the company value in the hands of a few shareholders or a few owners, uh, ESOP, the ESOP option was created as a way to share the benefits of the business with all of the employees. And so the transaction is really interesting in that when you sell the company to the employee trust, 
your company becomes tax exempt at the time of the transaction so that the employees can use the tax savings that they would have paid to the federal government to pay back the founders for the business. So it's it's really a remarkable kind of uh, way to transfer ownership from the original founders into the hands of all of the employees and the future employees of the business in a way that gives them a path to pay back the founders without spending any of their own personal money. Um, and it also incentivizes every incentivizes everyone to run the business the, in the best possible way because the employees who are good, who are becoming the owners it's in their best interest to have the company succeed because that's they're going to be their retirement vehicle and it's also the only way for the founders to get pay, paid back so the founders have this great incentive to keep managing the business correctly throughout the uh, the duration of the ESOP sure uh, and you guys went full bore into it. You guys we, went the 100% ESOP. We did 100%. There are such things as partially ESOPs. You can go as low as 30. Uh, you guys went the full 100. We did. And, you know, and part of that is it reflects the different ages of our ownership group. You know, we have one partner who is in his 30s. We have one who's in his 40s. I'm in my 50s and another who's in his 60s. And so we all have different time Covering horizons. All the decades. <laughs> yeah. We have different time horizons in terms of our, you know, our, our future work life. And uh, the older of us were anxious to do the uh, complete transaction because we wanted to make it uh, happen in a time timely fashion that we could take advantage of the the proceeds. And you know, it's it's going to be a ten year process if it goes as we hope it will. Yeah. So that's that's one of the things I wanted to touch on. Um, I've talked to a lot of business owners who contemplate ESOPs. And I think they're wonderful opportunities. They do take some planning and they do take a little bit more of a long-term thinking in terms of what you're saying on the 10-year time horizon is the execution of the ESOP to, to buy the company out is going to be a 10-year time horizon. That's pretty standard. Um, but the allocation of shares to employees, I believe yours is forty year a 40-year allocation. That's correct. So that just goes to highlight the duration of time that we're talking about and the stability that an ESOP can bring to a company still early days. Um, but the data would suggest that, you know, ESOP companies have really high employee engagement, really good employee outcomes, uh, generally have better operational metrics as well. So sort of two part question here. One, what have you done as a company to educate your workforce on the ESOP model? Because it's not something that people have interacted with on a day to day basis. And if you really dive into it, it's it is quite complex. Obviously, the IRS doesn't make anything simple. Um, so how, how have you gone through that education process? And what in, in the albeit short period of time, what noticeable outcomes have you seen as a result of it? We started the education process by bringing Sean Moody into our annual meeting last February. So you know, five months after the initial transaction, uh, Sean, who founded Moody's Collision and is a partial ESOP, he came in and gave the keynote speech to all of our employees shortly after the transaction happened. And we feel like that was a really powerful way to have them get good information from somebody not within the company. Mm -hmm. And what was his message? His message was that the ESOP has been fantastic for Moody's and that the employees really appreciate it and feel motivated by it. And they feel like it's a good deal for them. We plan to maybe start an inside newsletter like they have at Moody's Collision. Okay. Um, and we're constantly thinking about how to formalize 
the the information transfer to the employees. And what was the second part of the question? Well, I guess before we move off that, um, so when when you're focusing on internal communication, are there specific aspects of it that you're trying to communicate? There's so much you can talk about, and what you're what you're really trying to do is education on two parts. One, here's just the nuts and bolts of what this means for you and your family and your livelihood and your retirement. Uh, and two, you know, here's here's the goal of it is to try and sort of empower you to act like an owner, think like an owner, and really feel like an owner. Uh, and they're related, obviously, but there's sort of two parts. So so what is the what, what's the education focus on? For the most part, it's think like an owner, act like an owner. And so that message goes out every week. We have a weekly ops report that um, goes out to every single one of our employees. And each week, an employee is nominated for how they're embodying the spirit of continuous improvement and thinking and acting like an owner. And we constantly reinforce that message. If you, as an individual, are doing your absolute best every day and striving to make Revision Energy the best company that it can be, then we all benefit uh, yourself as well as all of your colleagues. And that seems to resonate with people. They they take that to heart. And we uh, kind of more periodically message around, okay, here are the nuts and bolts. Here's your account within the trust administrator. You can go in, here's what it's telling you, here's how to read your statement, things like that. And sure. and again, we're still in the infancy, so those uh, best practices have yet to come into full focus. Sure. Yeah, so the second part was, with the caveat being that you're still in the infancy, but what kind of noticeable outcomes have you seen from the employee base? 250 people, that's quite you know small in the grand scheme of things, but quite large when you're talking about a main main-based business. So what have you seen in the one plus, two plus years. Yeah, well, we, we've we heard mostly positive feedback that they're excited about it, that they appreciate it. The, the employees feel like Revision Energy has good intentions and that they want to take the best care of their people uh, as possible, except for now it's we're, our people and not, it's not, it's less of the us and them conversation. Mm -hmm. And, uh, by the same token, there's a little doubt and confusion. You know, how much is this really going to benefit me over the long haul? And that has yet to be determined because the account balances that the individuals have today are puny. Mm -hmm. You know, you start with almost nothing and you build value over time as the as the company accrues value and as the founders get paid off. And so right now people are taking a leap of faith. Sure. It's a little wait and see approach. Yes. And that's why we point to bigger... Uh, more successful companies like Chinbro to say, look, you know, here's a 60, 70 year institution in Maine that's been an ESOP for 30 years and they're going gangbusters. And that helps give people confidence. How about um, any anecdotal situations of employees really anywhere, but ideally not in a managerial role in the org chart, speaking up and saying, you know, before I was just punching a, a time clock. And now that I'm a part owner, however puny my balance might be today, they get it. And they're like, you know, hey, we should really be thinking about doing something this way. Uh, and it's sort of one of the things when you talk about employee ownership and whether it's via an ESOP or via stock options or whatever, you know, the thing that people tout is, man, you know, the, the bottom up um, push or pull, however you want to think about it, from employees on the front line who are the closest to the action is amazing. Have you experienced any of that thus far? Absolutely. So we have seen people really stepping up. I mean, we already felt like we had a deeply engaged team before we did the ESOP, but we have 
definitely noticed a fair number of individuals kind of raising their hand, bringing fresh ideas, fresh approaches, um, more commitment and passion to the equation than they had been doing in the past. There's a flip side to it too, though. Uh, some people might have the wrong notions about what it means to be an owner, right? I mean, President Trump is the owner of businesses. And in my opinion, he doesn't uh, have a lot of, you know, great leadership qualities that I would want my my employees to be thinking about it as kind of co-owners in my business. And so you have to be careful about what you think it means to be the right kind of owner. And, uh, you know, some owners uh, of some businesses may not be doing the right thing or may not have the best interests of employees or the environment or the community in their mind and operating their business. And so we try to be clear about what it means to be a co-owner of a B Corp like Revision. And part of the way that we're addressing that is uh, we're launching a leadership training program in 2019, which is something that we had not formalized in the past. And we feel like this is the right kind of inflection point for the company where we want to groom the future leadership to really carry forth the mission, vision, and values of the company in the most authentic way possible. Sure. So now that you've gone through this process, and, and again, with a caveat that it's still early, um, in, in your view, is there a way to drive employee accountability and that ownership mentality without the mechanism of something like an ESOP or actual physical ownership in a company? Because this is a topic that every owner that I talk to in my day job on this podcast talks about is, you know, no matter what I do, I could be a manufacturing business. That's the most tech enabled thing, but ultimately it comes down to people and, and everyone, everyone wants to empower their employees to be the best they can be and to think like an owner. Uh, do you feel like there's a way to do that without ownership? You yeah. talked about how it was a focus of yours even before the ESOP. Yeah, a- absolutely. So you have to do the right things and say the right things and and walk the talk when when you do that with your employees. And you know, profit sharing is one example, right? If you say that, listen, every year we're going to share five or ten percent of the annual profits of the business with the people who are making that happen as a way to uh, ask for their deeper passion and commitment. I think that resonates as authentic with people. Um, Let's say you have a landscaping business, which you mentioned is one of the industries within Chenmark's business world. Well, you know, how are you demonstrating that you're taking the best possible care of them. You know, maybe it's, uh, I don't know, you you make sure that dust masks are available to every employee for every job that's done, just as a way that to demonstrate that you care about their health and well-being. It's, it's things like that that are tangible expressions of your intention to do the best you possibly can for them while run, maintaining a viable business. Sure. Awesome. I think that's, that's great. Um, so I want to talk, I want to transition a little bit to the future of Revision. You've set the company up now via the ESOP to be a 100-year company, to empower individuals, to take ownership, act like an owner, think like an owner. So what do you see for Revision Energy? What are you hoping for in the next 5, 10, 20, 50, 100 years? We're hoping that Revision Energy is making a measurable, positive difference in the future of the region where we live and work in the prospects for the people who live and work in that region. You know, our, our goal is to use revision energy as a powerful force for good in the world. And so if 
fossil fuel consumption and carbon emissions are dropping and uh, social conditions are improving for people, we will consider our endeavor to have been a success. Um, there's lots of other like more specific you know metrics I could yeah, I could mention it. you know yeah, let's hear them. you know I'll give you one example today Mainers export five billion dollars a year from the local economy to import fossil fuels from away so we imagine a future where if that those five billion dollars were being kept in Maine's economy to create the clean energy infrastructure that will make us energy independent will uh, re drastically reduce the greenhouse gas emissions that are kind of visibly harming the Gulf of Maine and our fisheries industries, for example, then we think that that's a much better future for every Mainer that lives in the state and for all the tourists who come to visit us. So keeping our energy dollars in the state would be a tremendous benefit on, on so many levels. So that's one kind of tangible way that a clean energy transition can really help the state. So in some respects, your mission is is fairly broad in terms of positive impact. Um, there's an environmental bend to it. And obviously, given your name, there's an energy bend to it. Do you see that as essential? So revision energy will always be focused on clean energy? Or is it possible that revision energy, as long as it's a B Corp, and it's doing impactful, good work, maybe just for people, that you'll be satisfying your mission? Yeah, well, we—I mean, we don't have any preconceived notions about how far and wide we might stray into different industries. I don't know if that's part of your question there, but yeah. So I, I guess another way to another way to ask the question is: right now, you're focused on solar. Uh, clean energy can be wind. Uh, you can go totally crazy and go tidal. Um, so, you know, do you see that in your future? If we saw it as a sustainable path to advance our clean energy transition mission, then we would absolutely look at things like, say, offshore wind. But by the same token, we think that there's a very powerful argument for sticking to your knitting and focus on what you're really awesome at and don't get too over-diversified so you kind of dilute the core strength of the business. Yeah, you didn't let me lead you into a trap because that's what I was going to say is, you know, then how, if you were to say yes, then I would have said, well, how do you, how do you weigh, you know, focus and being excellent in one core thing versus getting too distracted and trying to take on too much of the market? Yeah, well, we tried it. We started out doing some small wind turbines in the early days and we ran from that wind turbine business as fast as we could with our hair on fire because it just wasn't a good fit. It's one thing to be good at, putting solar panels on rooftops. It's an entirely different dis discipline to be installing wind turbines. Sure. So then, so then the question becomes, how do you know what is a tangential market or sector to enter into? Because while so rooftop solar is, is your bread and butter, as you mentioned in the beginning of this podcast, you have all kinds of ancillary stuff like LED lighting. I know battery technology is, a, is sort of paired with renewable energy in a lot of cases, and, and you guys are entering it as well. So then how do you make that determination of, is this going to be a repeat of, of wind, or is this going to be something that, that really beefs up our solar offerings? We've experimented by dipping our toe in the water. We'll try the technology on our own homes to begin with and not make a, you know, a huge entry or huge rush into any different kind of adjacent market or technology. And if we get initial positive feedback from small pilot projects, then we say, oh, this looks like it has potential and we'll dedicate more resources to it 
And if it sticks and becomes successful in the course of a year or two, then we add it formally to the business. Okay. So you just yeah. op- open the door to a question that I, that I wanted to ask. Of your testing projects right now or the smaller divisions that sort of are, are more nascent than your bread and butter rooftop solar, you know, if you were to plow a huge amount of money, pick, pick whatever, million, five million, ten million dollars, doesn't matter. But if you were to have to allocate a whole chunk of money into one of those projects or, or you know, side tests, which one would it be and why? Right now, battery storage and electric vehicle charging opportunities are surging. So in Maine, we're about to have 20 or more million dollars come into electric vehicle charging infrastructure from the Volkswagen settlement money. So that, you know, there's a big pot of of, uh, dough to pursue, which could cause one to say, whoa, let's really, you know, pour the accelerant onto the EV charging business or into that division. And we are, we're doing that by um, you know, hiring people and and uh, positioning ourselves to be hopefully one of the, you know, the big installers of that infrastructure over the next 5, 10, 15 years. Um, and battery- will it, will it really last that long? Because what, what, right when you were saying that, I was thinking, that sounds a lot like solar hot water mm. from the beginning of the podcast of, you know, this is this market is a one-time market. It's being propped up by a windfall. In this case, it's a settlement from Volkswagen. Uh, in the previous case, it was regulatory uh, incentives. So, you know, is, well, is, you that, gotta, is that really a lasting you, place? You have to remember that an electric car is five times more efficient than an internal combustion engine vehicle. So even without government subsidy around EV charging infrastructure, you still have a really powerful economic case for electric vehicles over gas-powered cars. And so as those incentives fade away, that marketplace will still continue to grow simply because the economics are far better for EVs than for gas-powered cars. So okay. we... We see a long-term play there. How about about batteries? And with battery storage, what's happening is the the cost curve on the technology is falling along the same lines as the solar electric panels were, say, 10 years ago. And so the the cost of the the battery technology is starting to drop rapidly. And you're seeing some incentive programs creep into the marketplace. In Massachusetts, they just launched one, for example. And so we're positioning resources to be a bigger player in that space. All right. I want to wrap up the podcast with a few questions I ask everyone. Uh, the first one is imagine uh, there's this pause, magic pause button in life uh, where you didn't have to deal with the day-to-day of, re- of revision energy, whatever takes up the majority of your time, sort of time pauses, but you had to allocate that time revision energy related. How would you do so? You can't take a vacation. I would spend the majority of that time in high schools and colleges talking to the next generation about the opportunities presented by the clean energy transition, the opportunities that we have to create the better future that we know is possible for ourselves and for future generations, to give them hope and inspiration in the face of what is some really deeply disturbing information for the people who are paying attention today. You know, the the reports coming out of the scientific community about what the fossil fuel future... There's a report uh, that came out just last Friday. What those things look like, I think, are, are it's terrifying people. You know, I have a 15-year-old daughter who's a sophomore in high school, and she is one of those people paying attention, and she's scared to death about what this current generation is 
is doing to the uh, to the biosphere. So that's where I would spend the majority of my time. And is that in hopes to generate potential customers and hopes to generate potential employees and hopes to generate potential entrepreneurs who are going to tackle this problem in a slightly different way, maybe a little bit of all three? Uh, uh, more so inspiring the future leaders who we're going to need to kind of uh, solve these problems and to, you know, we need people who are counteracting the disinformation campaign out there. When the president of the country is telling us that we need to bring back coal and that we need to blow up the clean power plan, you know, those those sound like drastically wrong messages in the face of the scientific evidence in front of us. And so the the next generation is looking at and hearing this information and saying, what the hell are we going to do? And I'd like to be the person who's giving them the, uh, the good news about what the potential is and how we can get there. Very altruistic. I like it. Uh, so the next question is similar, and, and to a certain extent, we uh, we kind of already answered it but from my previous question. Uh, but imagine a uh, million dollars showed up on your doorstep, and you had to invest, reinvest it in Revision Energy. How are you allocating that money? I would take at least half of it and try to raise the wages of the lowest paid employee tier that we have uh, with the hope of engaging them for even longer than what the ESOP may, may achieve in its own right. Uh, the other half, how would I so use why, it? So why do you say that? Because I don't think that you can do too much for the employees who are getting out there and killing it every day for the company. And I'd like to just do more for those folks who are at the bottom end of our pay scale or our compensation package. And thankfully, we're, we're well above the minimum wage across all of our positions in the company. But certainly people who are trying to raise a family, um, they're, it's, it's not easy um, being an hourly employee. Um, sure. Yeah. And then the other half, I don't know. Uh, I guess maybe I would convert uh, more of our fleet to all electrics, you know, where we have a lot of hybrids and, uh, those are a couple areas I would focus on. Okay. Last one. Most open-ended here. What haven't I asked that I should have? And yes, you will have to answer your own question. Who helped you do this? Great. So it would be crazy not to mention that Bill Barron's, one of the co-founders of the company, wrote the book. He co-wrote the book Limits to Growth back in 1972, which was at the time a, a publication about the, um, the conflict between resource, finite resources and pop population growth. And so he wrote that book and then eventually ended up in the sustainability field. He's also an MIT PhD in environmental economics, and he has a BS in uh, electrical engineering. And then Fortunat Mueller is one of my other partners. He has dual mechanical engineering degrees out of Brown University, and he's actually a Swiss citizen who brings this kind of European uh, savvy to it, to our um, to our American-based business. And then the other guy, Dan Clapp, uh, who came out of the geothermal industry, is the other co-founder. And so without those guys, Revision Energy would have never become what it is today. And I'm lucky to be partners with those guys. Fair enough. Good thing to end on. 
Thanks a lot, Phil Coop, for being on the Big Time Small Business Podcast. You're welcome, Palmer. It's my pleasure. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Big Time Small Business Podcast. If you liked what you heard, please leave us a review and share the show with a friend. To access show notes and subscribe to our distribution list, be sure to visit us at chenmarkcapital.com slash podcast. That's chenmark, C-H-E-N-M-A-R-K, capital.com slash podcast. You can also follow us on Twitter at chenholdco, C-H-E-N holdco. Last but not least, we'd love to hear from you, so please drop us a line at podcast at chenmarkcapital.com. Thanks a lot.